So um, I was asked to do a talk on some aspect of climate change this week. I talked about it a few months ago. So um, I was thinking about how I could talk about it from a different vantage point. And then I, um, so I was at a conference uh, last week uh, for the Nature Conservancy. They have an annual summit meeting in, uh, in DC. And so, and I was inspired by watching the video work. We had a talk actually by Louis Schwartzberg. Some of you may know him. He's famous for time-lapse photography of nature, very stunning. And um, I always find talking about climate change very challenging because it's challenging. <laughs> like, how do you talk about something? How do you talk about something from a Dharma perspective around an issue that's so huge, so much bigger than humanity's ever faced before. So easy to move into or to feel helpless, hopeless, despair, uh, or be overcome with rage or denial or numbness or all kinds of things. And um, when watching his beautiful cinematography about various aspects of nature, I thought, why don't I show some fun videos? <laughs> Not fun. Why don't I show some videos of the beauty of the earth? You know, we're in this building here. We're not outside, where I, which of course I would like to be outside, um, where we could actually listen to the crickets and smell the, the grass. Um, but, and so the reason I wanted, I'm going to show various things and then talk in amongst them. Um, the premise, which is his premise, and it was in interesting hearing his words repeating my own teaching, um, which is uh, in one phrase, the phrase is, we protect what we love. We protect what we love. We don't love it, mm. we're not so motivated. Right? We look after our kith and kin, our family, our loved ones, friends, etc., because we love. It's the same with the earth. We protect, we care about that which we love, which requires that we actually open our hearts to the beauty, which requires that we actually spend time outside of our little boxes, houses, cars, cubicles, malls, Etc., and actually be outdoors to be, you know, to feel that. But second best to that, because sometimes we can't be outside, sometimes we can't be in the wilderness because we've got a job and we've got kids and we've got various responsibilities. And so sometimes ev the use of imagery and videos and whatnot is a way of reminding us of the beauty and the majesty and the unrepeatable matrix of life that's, that's called planet Earth. So um, 
And then as this week progressed and I began to be more um, affected and influenced by Steve's death, um, I was also aware of the the overlapping weave of loss, personal and global, that they're not different, that as vast and as overwhelming as climate change can be, we also feel it as a person, as a human being, and we feel the particularity of that in our relationship to land, in relationship to uh, nature, to our gardens. I was talking to, I was teaching down at Esalen this weekend, and I was talking to uh, a lovely woman there who um, bought five acres and built a sustainable permaculture biodynamic house and garden up in Reading many years ago and sort of that was her sort of retirement uh, plan and then of course the with climate change the the well dried up and she dug another well and the well dried up and she dug another well and the well dried up and she kept digging deeper and the wells dried up and still jigging wells, still drying up. And this is a very familiar story, right? Where we experience loss uh, firsthand. And of course, we're in this rather desperate drought, praying for El Nino, no signs of it yet, except in the warming waters out in the Pacific. So I'm going to weave a little about just some reflections on grief first, because whether it's personal grief that we're feeling or collective grief, grief is grief. So this is a poem from Ellen Bass, and it's about waking up. It's called Waking Grievers. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm or press your fingertips into the crease of a lifeline. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her auntie. They had just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her auntie's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block, and her auntie dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does this dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless and pinned against time. What would people look like if we could see them as they are soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, we're reckless, pinned against time, and the clock is ticking and running out. So when we hear of tragedy and loss, near or far, big or small, it can be a reminder, Buddhist teachings remind us again and again, wake up. You're not going to last very long. The biggest cause of death is birth. <laughs> and we're all on our journey, merrily, merrily. Right? Except we don't believe it's going to happen to us. 
And when it happens to someone close to us, we get stunned into disbelief. We get stunned into the mystery of what is this about? What is life about? Where does the soul go if there's a soul, a consciousness? So that's partly what, what draws many of us to practice, to, to look and answer these existential dilemmas. What does it mean to be awake knowing we're going to die? At, it could be at any moment, tragically or naturally. So we meditate, we get quiet, we still, we look within, and we inquire. We don't necessarily find any answers, but we look, we inquire, we're open, we're, we're curious about the mystery. We hope to understand over the years something through our life experience, through our investigation. This is from Suzuki Roshi. Sort of relates to the theme. <coughs> He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation till there's some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love, and then you are tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally, you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and your thoughts and worries, and you just sit there in the middle of it all, and that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice, the power of your practice to sit in the middle of it all without an answer, without a remedy, without a fix-it strategy. But you, can, you have the capacity and the courage and sometimes the strength or the tenacity to, to face life as it is without numbing out, without going to the frozen Ben and Jerry's or the bottle or you know pornography or whatever your chosen way of checking out is and we sit in the midst of it all with presence this is from David White I was reading his poetry last night as inspiration for this talk wonderful Irish poet. He has a wealth of beautiful poetry about loss. And he writes, this is called The Well of Grief, one of his more well-known poems. He says, Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down through its black water to the place we cannot breathe. We'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief will never know the source from which we drink. So there's a power and there's a mystery and there's a beauty in grief, in turning towards our loss, in opening to it, and allowing our heart to be ripped open, to be torn, to be laid naked and bare, to feel our common humanity, our vulnerability, our fragility, 
and we need these qualities, whether it's our own personal life, our own losses and griefs, which we all are subject to. I just was talking to someone at the beginning of the class who's just lost a close family member and the the animal and losses all around. In the, the Bhagavad Gita, they say, what is the greatest mystery about mankind? It is looking around and seeing how everybody's going to die and thinking it's not going to happen to you. <laughs> so, and when we face our troubles, our challenges, our sorrows, our hurts, our wounds, our losses, right? our dark night of the soul, our greatest existential fears, right? which we do, which we have to do in the realm of our journey towards integration, towards wholeness, towards waking up. We do that with a kind heart, a compassionate presence. What we find is not weakness in there, but we find strength, we find stability, we find a sense of ground, we sense of ground, even though there's a, gra- even though there's a groundlessness, we f- there's a sense of, of um, finding refuge in the referencelessness of the world and life, the refuge of awareness, the refuge of knowing, the refuge of truth. And so um, this is the last poem I'll read. This is from a poet called Rashani, who I know little of except this beautiful poem she wrote. And she writes, There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken. A shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sounds whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. Sometimes it feels, and I'm sure you know this, that your heart's splitting open, that it's breaking open. I don't believe the heart breaks. It feels like that. But it's teaching us about its unbroken capacity, its unshatterable strength. And we see this time and again, the course of human history, you know, being in England and seeing the hearing and uh, the accounts of Syrian refugees and the tremendous trauma and degradation and violence and oppression and the tenacity of the human spirit again and again and again. And we need these same qualities to turn towards this rather collective calamitous grief of climate change, of what humans are doing to the planet, knowingly and unknowingly. We're reaping the consequences of centuries of uh, our actions that were perhaps innocent to start with and now less innocent in the last 
50 years or so when we began to track and know the impacts of our fossil fuel usage, of our coal mining, of our gas consumption, of our various ways that we are eroding the very air and water that we need to survive. It's a very precipitous and powerful, pivotal point it feels like we're facing as a species. Can we wake up collectively enough, quick enough? Can our organisms of society and and business and capitalism, can they actually turn quick enough to meet the change that's necessary? (coughs) I hope so. The jury is out. Climate change scientists know there's no stopping climate change. Climate change is here. It is here to stay. We can mitigate the severity and the impact of the devastation that already communities I was just reading about in Papua New Guinea, huge droughts, um, storms because of El Nino, and because of rising temperatures, uh, and small uh, islands in the Pacific will be much more prone to typhoons and uh, variations in weather patterns, which will cause a lot of uh, sickness and death and starvation. So very difficult times to keep our heart open, to find that uh, unbreakable heart. And yet it doesn't help us to keep drowning in facts and gloom and doom. It's important that we go out and we, just as I did this weekend down in Big Sur Coast, um, dry as a bone as it is, still beautiful, still wild, still waves crashing, still otters playing in the kelp beds, still sunrises blowing our minds. Anybody see the sunset this Thursday, last Thursday? Off the charts. Right. A little bit of smog just to make it a little more interesting, you know. So we need various things in this time. So I want to speak to some of those. And I call them the four R's of climate change. And the first, and that's sli- slight sort of taking a liberty with the word R, letter R. The first is to reacquaint ourselves with the beauty of the earth, to not forget, to take time to immerse ourselves. And we live, you know, if you're living in the Bay Area, we're very blessed. We're blessed by beauty. We're blessed by ocean. We're blessed by forest and this huge range of flora and fauna. So I want to play a couple of videos. Um, Both, I believe, these ones are by uh, Louis Schwartzberg, who is an amazing cinematographer. You can track some of his work on YouTube. And the first is just a very short clip of, oh, I know what that is. We know what that is. Right, that pivotal moment when the Earth was viewed from space, precious blue-green planet. So in this video, this is a very short clip, um, just to give you a little taste of his work of time-lapse photography, which he's been doing for 35 years. 
This is just, uh, he talks about the reason why things are made beautiful is because, because we fall in love sexually or otherwise and we preserve and we mate and we thrive and we survive. Whether it's a young baby, a flower, This is a flower opening. Speed it up a little. We should do we should just sit by a flower for, you know, instead of going on retreat, we should just <laughs> sit there entranced in awe and beauty. So one of the things that Louis done is um, if he did this beautiful uh, film on um, flowers, the world of flowers. And then later he decided to do a video about the pollinators, okay? particularly the bees who have been under such duress um, because, of the because of agri-farming and um, being often some bees are you know, moved around 50,000 miles a year, 50,000 miles a year uh, to pollinate, you know, monoculture crops around the country. And so this next film is about the pollinators, whether it's the bees or the butterflies. And as is being down at Esalen, where the monarch butterflies, it's one of the furthest reaches, the monarchs come from Mexico. So it was uh, just this wonderland of monarchs feeding on the amazing flowers they have there and bees and um, again, just to, just to, as I play this next video, to uh, uh, just notice what happens in your heart as you uh, watch and take it in. Hopefully, we'll, the, the, the tech will all work up and we'll have sound and everything.
The next bat is carrying. Uh, next one will be carrying an infant nursing on its breast. Not this one. The next one. So what do you notice as you watch that? And we'll shout out, what, you, what do you feel? Softened. Awe. Breathless. Tender. Joy. Hmm? Gratitude. Yeah, each time you take your spoon of honey, it's <laughs> a lot of work goes on. I don't know if those insects, whatever they're bees or otherwise, feel joy, but it seems like when they're in those pollen shoots, they're just like, woo, yippee, <laughs> Christmas time. <laughs> you know, nature's seductive for a reason, right? It, it allures us, it allures us, it allures insects to procreate, allures us to pay attention. It lures us to love, so we take care, so we protect. This is, it's, it's designed for a reason. I'm always in awe that nature, for the most part, is stunningly beautiful to our eyes. It doesn't have to be that. We, we could be living in a really ugly universe, but we don't. We live in a stunningly beautiful universe. Like That is mysterious to me. And it also, you know, given the nature of our profound, inextricable interconnection, I don't doubt that there's many, 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 many reasons 
why this being in consciousness finds nature beautiful. If it was ugly, we might not care so much. Because it's beautiful, we fall in love, in awe, in wonder. We're moved into the something transpersonal. That's why we want to go out into it, to immerse in it, to be in it, to protect it. So I was watching, I wish I could have grabbed this video <coughs> they played at the Nature Conservancy. So they were doing a, um, they were launching a fundraising campaign, just a modest uh, campaign to save nature. You know. It's a five, five billion dollar fundraising campaign. Of course, it's going to take a lot more than that, but you've got to start somewhere. And so they played this beautiful legacy video of this grandfather who I, I assumed was known in the conservancy. I didn't recognize his name. I assumed he'd been a naturalist all his life and lived in, <coughs> I think, somewhere in, in the Carolinas, in the hills, on a river. And, and it was a letter to his grandson. And you know, started off, Dear James, I want you to know why you won't be getting your inheritance from me. Because, and then he goes, there's a very beautiful letter. He says, what I care about most is that you have an earth to grow into, that you have nature preserved, that you have a legacy for your own children and grandchildren. And that's why I've decided to bequeath my money and my estate to uh, nature conservation which I regard as actually a bigger gift to you because I hope through those money, through those funds, that it helps as part of the efforts to create uh, preservation, land and water and air. And it was just very touching that, that, again, moved by love both through nature, through love of his family and his, his, his uh, descendants, that he was uh, giving his money in that way. So, what's hard about loving so deeply, as I do and as many of you do, is that it hurts when that which we love is being hurt. It hurts when we hear about species loss, when we hear about a species becoming extinct, when we hear about uh, what I read today, of the bleaching of the coral reefs. And it hurts when we hear about uh, the declining in numbers of, you name it, the list is long. It's hard to keep our heart open, hard to feel the, the raw pain of that. Hard to even walk around these hills sometimes knowing how parched and dirt brown, not even grassy, not even dead grass, it's just brown. Knowing that the aquifers are drying up, knowing that we're soiling our own bed. And, as Joanna Macy, who was here last week, and other great teachers remind us, it's essential that we keep our eyes open. It's part of a healthy ecosystem, both to keep the eyes open 
and also to feel and grieve the loss. It's healthy. So, I want to play, um, I'll see if I have this in the right order, I hope I do. Um, this next video is um, pointing to some of the various things that we uh, have been threatened uh, into extinction, some of which are making a wonderful comeback. This is just a photo with a little song of some of the various species that are at risk. And again, just noticing what happens in your heart as you watch it. And the words of the song are somewhat instructive. Only need the light when it's burning low Only miss the sun when it starts to snow Only know you love her when you let her go Only know you've been high when you're feeling low Only hate the road when you're missing home Only know you love her when you let her go And you let her go of your clouds, hoping one day you'll make a dream last, but dreams come slow and they go so fast, you see it when you close your eyes, maybe one day you'll understand why, everything you touch surely dies, but you only need the light when it's burning low, only miss the sun when it starts to snow, only know you love her when you let her go Only know you've been high when you're feeling low Only hate the road when you're missing home Only know you love her when you let her go Staring at the ceiling in the dark Same old empty feeling in your heart Cause love comes slow and it goes so far We see you when you fall asleep But never to touch and never to keep Cause you loved her too much and you dive too deep We you only need the light when it's burning low Only miss the sun when it starts to snow Only know you love her when you let her go Only know you've been high when you're feeling low only hate the road when you're missing home Only know you love her when you let her go And you let her go
So the four R's I was mentioning of climate change, the first is to reacquaint ourselves with the beauty of nature. The second is to recognize what we're losing. We're losing a lot. And it's very heartbreaking. It's tragic. It's a travesty. It doesn't need to be happening. It certainly doesn't need to be happening at the pace it's happening. You know, we're in this fifth or sixth great mass extinction. So we need to stay mindful. This practice is a mindfulness practice, means to be aware, means to wake up, means to not go to sleep. Right? And it's very easy, as I know as, as much as anybody, you know, we have busy lives, we have our concerns, we're trying to pay the rent, we're, you know, taking care of our families, and, and there's a lot going on to take care of. And it's very easy to forget that we're heading into the sixth mass extinction that we're tumbling towards a climate change that's sort of irreversible. Just easy to get lost in, you know, the latest baseball game or whatever it is that we're into. And that's why I think it's helpful, even though it's hard to talk about this, it's hard to listen to this. It's also useful because we go to sleep personally we go to sleep as a species. Right? And if it wasn't for the, the, the die-hard actions of a few brave and courageous souls, we'd be in a lot worse shape. You know, think about the people on the Greenpeace Warrior who you know, risked their lives to first ban seal hunting and then Arctic drilling and then all kinds of other things. That's courageous work. That's bodhisattva work. A bodhisattva is someone who puts their life on the line to save others. So recognizing what we're losing. The good news, you know, is when we do come together, what I call the third R, which is to reimagine possibility. Reimagine our potential to change and act. Though we can make a difference. Slow incremental. So because of the Endangered Species Act that was passed almost 50 years ago now, maybe a little less, um, there's been tremendous, uh, especially in, in the continental US, North America, tremendous regeneration of species that were really, really on the brink of extinction. Some, like the con- California condor, um, a few of those were really down to the dozens of speci- breeding species left. So those who can't see the, the list at the bottom, there's Stella sea lion, California condor, red wolf, grizzly bear, gray whale, humpback whale have made a tremendous recovery, Florida panther, 
fin whale, blue whale, made tremendous recovery. We see them sometimes in Baja when they're kayaking. They're now regenerating there also in the Sea of Cortez. Um, so this is also the good news, to know that we can make a difference, that we can make an impact through legislation, very necessary, through you know very committed botanists and biologists on the ground, people preserving land, people stopping the... Uh, degradation of uh, essential habitat. So we have to imagine the unimaginable, as Paul Hawkins said in his response to our climate, in response to the carbon crisis. We have to imagine the unimaginable. We have to imagine a post-carbon world. We have to imagine a post-fossil fuel world. We have to imagine a post combustion engine society. He said, we'll look back and we'll have cars, we'll be in museums, and we'll say, look what humans used to adulate as, you know, as a god, the combustion engine. Right? It will be a relic, hopefully, in 30 years. Because it needs to be, because otherwise we can't sustain ourselves. We'll be driving electric cars, or hydrogen cars, or maybe not even driving cars, who knows? But it's possible, and there are amazing thousands, if not millions, of people working on this issue, on climate change, on sustainability, on um, alternative fuels, on alternative technologies, that we're making a difference, and we'll continue to make a difference. And to think about how we may engage ourselves how we may engage to uh, lobby people in power, whether it's in business or in government, to also make change. So what was inspiring being at this TNC, the Nature Conservancy meeting, the reason they hold it in DC is because they have very active local chapters in each state. So they have 50 states, 50 chapters. Um, and they're very active at lobbying their congressmen. So they had 220 meetings on Capitol Hill with congressmen and women about climate issues and around environmental issues and around changing legislation in support of endangered species or reducing reliance on coal or whatever it was. That's people making a difference with, making the, with the people who make a difference. So when I gave my climate talk a few months ago, someone came in to me and said, that's great, you know, but there's only so much we can do personally. It really, where change is really going to happen is on a political, uh, governmental, legislative level, corporate level, which is true. Um, I think both are important. I think that the, the, what the efforts we make personally, but really the, the, the efforts we make personally that can influence institutions is really where it may we have an impact. So the, the, the campaign to divestment. How many people are familiar with the divestment campaign? Okay, a few. So uh, this is one of the most more effective campaigns, which I think will be one of the tipping points in this era, which is um, started in college campuses uh, where the students were, were campaigning to have their college divest their pension funds and whatever holdings and um, funds they had, uh, divest them away, take them out of any fossil fuel industries. Started with 50 billion 
a year ago. It's now $2.2 trillion have been divested, including the two biggest funds in the country, um, which is the Calif- both in California, the um, teachers and the California State Pension Fund or something like that, CalPERS. Uh, CalPERS, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, business listens to money. And if suddenly the fossil fuel industry is realizing that $2.2 trillion has been divested from those stock portfolios, that gets their attention. You know, a few, you know, Greenpeace, a few activists, a few hippies on the street corner, mm, I don't care too much. But when you start talking dollars and cents, you get their attention. So very effective grassroots campaign on college campuses and everywhere from, from people like Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge and various universities have divested and just a, a growing trend similar to the way um, the anti-apartheid movement had its greatest impact by divesting from in, in companies who were doing business in South Africa. That's what really made the government come to the table in a similar way that will happen with, uh, I think, with the fossil fuel industry. So we have to reimagine a possibility of a post-carbon crisis future. Right? And sometimes we're in the middle of really reading the stats. It doesn't look very hopeful. So we have to stay, uh, somebody, I think it was Paul Hogan who said, um, visionaries are the real realists. Cynics are the unreal ones. Because often, you know, people, if someone said, you know, you'd spend most of your life looking at a screen 30 years ago, I said, what are you talking about? I don't watch TV. (laughs) They said, no, not not that kind of screen. (laughs) The last R is to re-inspire ourselves to act, to engage in some ways. That's why we have Climate Care Week. That's why we have these ribbons that's organized by the Spirit Rock Community, if I can get this right, Spirit Rock Community Green Group. Spirit Rock, Spirit Rock Community Climate Change Group, right? So we have some representatives here, Helga and Fola, and um, uh, who will be, you know, those ribbons will be taken to uh, to Paris for the the summit. And when I say we inspire ourselves to act how we act can be in many different ways. We can act with our choices as consumers, with our cars that we drive, with the food that we eat. We can act with our generosity. Some of us are in positions where we have wealth that we can donate, and many people are choosing to do that towards environmental causes. This is from uh, Angela Zarian. This is about acting, and, and I, I mentioned this in my talk a few months ago. One of the things I, I take to heart very much is the words from Joanna Macy. I had lunch with her a while ago, and Joanna's been doing um, activism work for um, decades, probably at least five decades. And started with the uh, nuclear disarmament movement and holding witness to uh, Three Mile Island and whatnot. And... Um, I said to her, as, as she often gets asked, as I often get asked, how do you not despair? How do you not give up? How do you not feel overwhelmed? How do you not 
uh, feel you know, impotent in the face of such calamitous uh, challenge. And she said, the most important thing to do is to engage, is to do something, and to not do it alone, but to act with others in towards constructive change, whether it's restoring a local creek in your neighborhood, to going to Paris and demonstrating, to forming um, an awareness group in your area around various environmental issues, campaigning again in lobbying in Washington, whatever it is. She says, it doesn't matter if you succeed. That's not the point. That was a very, very, very uh, radical statement. It doesn't matter if you succeed. The point is you engage and you uh, act with others and that diffuses the despair and the disempowerment, which is such a um, grip and a um, sap on constructive change. So this is from Angelis Arian, who was a wonderful teacher who drew her uh, uh, wisdom from the native indigenous traditions. And she also talked about working in community. And she says, she talks about geese as being a great metaphor for how we cooperate. She says, fact one, as each goose flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the birds that follow. By flying in V formation, the whole flock adds 72% greater flying range than if each bird flew alone. The lesson. People who share a common direction and sense of community can get where they are going quicker and easier because they are traveling on the thrust of one another. Fact two, when a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and resistance of flying alone. It quickly moves back into formation to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird immediately in front of it. And the lesson, if we have as much sense as geese, we stay in formation with those headed where we want to go. We're willing to accept their help and give our help to others. Fact three, when the lead goose tires, it rotates back into the formation and another goose flies to the point position. Lesson, it pays to take turns doing the hard tasks, sharing leadership. As with geese, People are interdependent on each other's skills, capabilities, and unique arrangements of gifts, talents, and resources. Lesson four. There's five lessons. The geese flying in formation honk to encourage those up front to keep up their speed. Lesson. We need to make sure our honking is encouraging. <laughs> Point taken. In groups where there is encouragement, the production is greater. The power of encouragement to stand by one's heart or core values and encourage the heart and core of others is the quality of honking we are seeking. <laughs> Fact five, when a goose gets sick, wounded, shot down, two geese drop out of formation and follow it down to help and protect it. They stay with it until it dies or is able to fly again. Then they launch out with another formation or catch up with the flock. Lesson, if we had as much sense as geese, we will stand by each other in difficult times as well as when we are strong. So when I think about re-inspiring ourselves to action, I think of one of the things that's most needed is a fierce compassion. Right? Sometimes we think of compassion as a soft, kind, tender quality, but also compassion is fierce like the mother tigress protecting her young. Fierce, strong, powerful, grounded, rooted, just. And I think about those Greenpeace 
activists on their little boats fighting against huge odds, against whaling or against whatever it is they're taking on. That's fierce compassion. It's strong, powerful. It makes a difference, changes lives. So I want to close with uh, another video um, and a couple of quotes. So this is... Um, well, maybe I'll read this poem. This is kind of a good poem that kind of leads into the... There's a couple of videos. I'm not going to show one of them because that will just make you weep all the way till you get home. I'm going to show you one that's also going to open your hearts. Uh, I'm going to save you from more grief. Uh, this is uh, from Jack Gilbert, a wonderful poet, called A Brief for the Defense. Or part, it's part of this, beginning part of the poem. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If, if babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else. With flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what is asked. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women even laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil, whoever the devil is. Okay, so um, I'm going to close, not with this. Well, this is a beautiful video. At some point, you, I'm tempted to show it, but it's very um, so this is a Tar Sands video um, with Joanna Macy and uh, um, Jennifer Barrison, who's a wonderful singer-songwriter. And it's about um, the travesty that's happening up in Alberta with the, the mining, strip mining of um, the tearing down of virgin boreal forests and... Uh, excavating these open pit mines that you probably know about in the tar sands that uh, the um, size of the United Kingdom uh, being mined. So um, you can watch that in the comfort of your own homes. It's a very beautiful film, but I want you to leave you with a slightly um, more joyful note. So let's see if we can, uh, see if we can get to this. We might have to do some fiddling around here. Uh, this would be interesting how I can do this. How do I do that? I'm getting there. <laughs> Breathe. <laughs> We may or may not be able to get to this. We'll see. You like the title? What's the title? Oh, Amanda. Oh, Amanda. Yeah, it's a good one, isn't it? 
Ah, here we go. Reacquainting ourselves with the beauty of the earth. Sacred duty. California. Okay, we could go on, but I'm aware of the time. So, um, 
Just last thoughts, really. Um, you know, as I mentioned, there's a Spirit Rock uh, Climate Action Group, many ways to get involved. I'm sure many of you are already involved. Um, but really just want to support us staying awake, turning. You know, the, the power of compassion is to turn towards the difficult. And there's nothing like this current climate crisis to keep inviting that courageous turn to turn into and look and to hold the reality of what's happening, not out of despair and depression, but to uh, bear witness and to also see what wants to come forth as a response, both personally and collectively. So thank you for your attention. Very nice to be with you and uh, blessings. Go well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.